Good evening. Welcome to another Unsanction Your Mind reading from the Unsanctioned Citizen. I'm your hostess, Sheila Dean. I'll be reading from In the Mouth of the Wolf, A Murder, a Cover-Up, and the True Cross, True Cost, sorry, of Silencing the Press. So I'm just gonna eliminate this background. Uh, stuff and then I'll begin my reading. But first, we're going to invite some people. Boom, boom, boom. Thanks once again. You're airing from Austin, Texas. And um, waiting for some folks to show up. So, this is the book written by former AP Mexico Bureau Chief Catherine Corcoran. And it's her investigation into the murder of a legendary journalist on the verge of exposing government corruption in Mexico. So the problem is Mexican government corruption, which people have long known about. They're like, "Mm, yeah, tacos, government corruption. They know about it, but they don't really know about it. Um, Corruption is, is bad when you don't, when it's over there and you don't think you're living with it. This is when the people quash the press and then don't allow public dissent over things that are going on in their country. And that kind of thing is going on here. Uh, And we never thought it would get to that place. But one of the reasons why I'm on call in right now is because mm, dot, 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 Twitter files. So, if you go look at the Twitter files, there's a whole bunch of um, inconvenient truths about our intelligence services and our intelligence agencies kind of butting into our communications. And that's a big, fat problem. And they're not just butting in. They're not just listening ambiently online. What they're doing is they're trying to control the conversations of a free people. And so that happens not just in America, but in North America. And this is about the story of an AP journalist uh, in Mexico. So here we go. And this is for my Catherine's mom and Lisa. That's who she wrote the book for. To believe that there is a heaven within hell, to give your life and soul to delusion, that is love. Anyone who has tried, it knows. Lope de Vega. Sorry. So I'm going to read the preface. On my first day as Associated Press Bureau Chief in Mexico City, I was awakened by 6 a.m. phone call. The news agency had received a threat from a drug cartel. It came via cell phone text to one of our journalists ordering ordering us to publish a story about then-President Felipe Calderon protecting Joaquin El Chapo Guzman, the world's most notorious drug lord, now serving a life sentence in the United States, or we would receive a quote-unquote special visit. The message listed the address of the Bureau. It was signed by the Zetas, 
El Chapo's rivals. One of my responsibilities as bureau chief was the safety of more than a dozen correspondents and 20 freelancers around the region. At that moment, I was faced with protecting the entire Mexico team of a U.S.-based international news agency. The Zetas knew where we worked. In a flurry of messages among AP offices in New York, Buenos Aires, and London, I told my editors that we needed to take extreme actions to the point of removing from the country anyone in danger. I wrote this at 6.47 a.m. These guys don't fool around. Welcome to your first assignment as bureau chief, the Latin American editor told me. I can't say I was surprised. In fact, I knew immediately what to do. I'd already worked in Mexico for two and a half years, and I knew the press there was under siege. It was the most dangerous country in the world to be a journalist outside of a war zone. The forces that attacked the Mexican press usually left the international media alone. But this was an epidemic, and it was only a matter of time before it reached us. By the time we received the threat, 51 journalists had been killed in Mexico since the Committee to Protect Journalists started keeping track in 1992. About half of those killings had occurred since I arrived in Mexico in 2008. Ten were killed in 2010 alone, the year I got the early morning phone call. The same week, a Mexican news photographer was gunned down in Ciudad Juarez across the border from El Paso, Texas. He was the second journalist killed at the local newspaper El Diario de Juarez in many years. The first assassinated in 2008 covered justice and organized crime and was far more in the crosshairs. But the photographer who was killed in 2010 was just 21 years old. An 18-year-old photo intern traveling with him was injured in the attack. What did anyone gain by attacking them? To the newspaper, its staff had become a cannon fodder. At Sunday, the paper ran a headline from and a front-page editorial address to the narcos, What do you want from us? The Diario de Juarez front-page editorial was the first major acknowledgement of how bad things had gotten, especially for journalists at news organizations along the Mexican-U.S. border, where drug cartels were in fierce confrontations over shipping routes. Up to that point, editors refused to talk to their newsrooms if they were hit, under the illusion that the silence would buy them safety. Now, a newspaper flat outside identified drug cartels as the de facto authorities. What do you want from us played around the world as far as Japan and Russia, but particularly in the United States where it garnered a New York Times editorial and networks calling my office looking for correspondents to interview. A week into my new job, I was thickened to an issue that would dominate my time there. Pedro Torres, an editor at El Diario de Juarez, who wrote the headline, told me that his question, which everyone took literally as supplicating to the narcos, was in fact rhetorical. We weren't speaking directly to drug gangs. It was an open message, Torres said in an interview. We wanted to provoke a reaction that would call attention to what's happening in Juarez. And in the end, I think we met our objective. Except that despite the global publicity, nothing changed. No one has ever been detained for the photographer's murder. One trigger man was sentenced to 30 years in the 2008 reporter killing, but whoever ordered the hit was never identified. Instead of pursuing the killers, Mexican officials had a way of blaming the victims, implying that if they were killed, they must have fallen into malos pasos, bad ways. 
Then one journalist killing changed the narrative. On April 28th of 2012, Regina Martinez, correspondent for the national investigative magazine Proceso, was discovered beaten to death in her bathroom in Jalapa, the capital city of the Gulf state of Veracruz. Her death made news around the world. In a state known for corruption, Regina was the author, author sorry, of many exclusives, and no one could argue that she was dirty, nor could they argue it was a cartel hit. Regina covered government. Even so, people who knew her or who worked with her or who were family members refused to speak publicly about the case, clearly out of fear. In effect, they were unwittingly helping those who wanted to obscure the facts. Within a year, authorities arrested an alleged suspect and declared the case closed. It was closed for no one but the Veracruz government. The case lingered around my mind as well, even as I managed one of the busiest news regions for the AP at that time. Perhaps it was because Regina and I were of the same generation and spent our entire adult lives as journalists. Perhaps because I talked to her on the phone once, because perhaps uh, because her story revealed what was actually happening with these journalist killings. In the face of rampant corruption, which was crippling Mexico's new democracy, they were an attempt to shut down free speech. And they worked. As the attacked, as the attacks grew, the Veracruz media fell into lockstep, electing not to con- cover crime and publishing government press releases verbatim. This was completely antithetical to my values in my career as a journalist, which began in the so-called post-Watergate era. When I graduated from college in the 1980s, journalism was considered a way to have an impact, to change the world, to make things better. It was also a great equalizer. You didn't have to make money or have money or status to take the important role of relaying remarkable events to everyday readers or viewers. In the United States, even if polls at times showed that the public hated us, ranking just above politicians and car salesmen, we were part of the system, a vital institution for the preservation of democracy, protected by the first, not the second or the fifth, amendment. Freedom of speech and transparency were fundamental to our system. One of my friends, a publisher of small but aggressive newspaper, had this motto printed every day on his front page. If you don't want it printed, don't let it happen. My personal efforts to change the world and hold people accountable started humbly. In my first job at a small newspaper, I analyzed pedestrian accidents statistics at an intersection and wrote a story that resulted in the installation of a stop sign. I wrote about a public official who was using building materials from a boys and girls club for personal home improvements. He resigned. Over the years, my targets grew in number and in power. By the time I reached the Associated Press in Mexico, my team was involved in exposing extrajudicial killings by the Mexican army and how the government, with great fanfare, arrested cartel assassins, accused of dozens of murders, and then quietly let them go. Regina was the Mexican version of a Watergate baby. She started her career also in the 1980s around two seminal events, the 1985 Mexico City earthquake, which proved the federal government absolutely indifferent and impotent, and the 1988 presidential election of Carlos Salinas de Gortari, sorry, excuse me, which was widely regarded as stolen. These events were key in breaking down the one-party system and ushering in free and fair elections, 
Regina was part of a small but emerging generation of journalists propelled by that same Watergate sense that the government had betrayed its people and that it was up to press to expose exactly how. But for here, sorry, but for her, it was a death sentence. Uh, That is what ultimately grabbed me, along with the fact that it was happening right across the border from my own country. Yet outside of the studies by advocates and visits by UN representatives, which always resulted in no action, the murder of journalists in Mexico went unheeded by anyone with real power in the United States or the rest of the world. My initial desire to dive into the Regina Martinez case was twofold. I wanted people to care about what was happening in Mexico, and I wanted to help Mexico. We, the American journalists, needed to show them how it's done, how to stand up to the bad guys, buttress the free press in Mexico so they could become more like us. As a reporter, I also wanted to solve the whodunit, shine a spotlight on those who had gotten away with the murder. That's what journalists do. My notion of American excellence turned out to be an American naivete. The realities of reporting in Mexico were far more complicated than anything I had encountered elsewhere. And my intention to find the culprits was compromised by these complexities. By happenstance, I was able to get to know and gain the trust of some of Regina's closest confidants. But in a place where there is a weak rule of law and no particular value in telling the truth, it was still rough going. No question had a direct answer. Everyone was afraid to the point where I had started to absorb the paranoia. A society without truth is a scary place to live. When I first proposed an in-depth look at Regina's death to American editors in 2015, her story was a hard sell. They thought a journalist covering the troubles of journalists was self-serving. No one cares about what happens to journalists except for other journalists, was one response I got. Most Americans don't really care about Mexico, was the other one. Then something truly extraordinary happened. In the course of investigating Regina Martinez's murder, my country started to look more like Mexico. Oh, truth became optional and information, a weapon used to control and manipulate the independent press. The bedrock of our democracy was called the enemy of the people, corrupt purveyors of fake news. And the good press was the one that supported the government. Something I had never encountered in the United States in my 30 year, 30 plus year career. Suddenly American journalists were prosecuted chased, clubbed, and thrown over walls, and had their equipment smashed. CNN and other newsrooms were evacuated under bomb threats. After decades of fighting for press safety around the globe, the Committee to Protect Journalists started tracking attacks in the United States. This rattled me. I started out writing about Regina Martinez to help Mexico, but by the time by the end of my time as AP bureau chief, one Mexican colleague jokingly though perhaps not so much, asked me if we wanted them to come to the United States to train us in handling threats and attacks from our government. I was watching the elements of what I saw in a weak emerging democracy, one plagued with violence and moral bankruptcy on the part of many leaders, occur in my own country. Suddenly, my impulse for telling the Regina Martinez story changed. As much as the whodunit, I was motivated by the question that one beloved editor, the late Neil Westergaard, posted on his computer as a constant reminder, what does it mean? For us in the United States, 
questions remain. What happens when this path of fake news and obfuscation were on takes in natural court? What it, oh, sorry, sorry about it. If it takes its natural courts, and to what end is the press ever controlled, discredited, attacked, and murdered? Who is really at risk? What's really at stake? Nothing answers these questions better than the case of Regina Martinez. Okay, so who do I have with me? I have Vlad and Miranda. <laughs> Thank you for showing up. Um, so we're 16 minutes in. I can continue to read part one, chapter one, time. And that's a very short chapter. And then I could take calls. So chapter one, time. April 28th of 2012. <clears throat> the neighbor's iron gate stood ajar, something that Isabel Nunez failed to notice when she woke to her Saturday morning routine during her household chores or when she left about 1 p.m. to go shopping. It was on her way home when Yolanda Balderas stopped Isabel to ask her about the gate. Yolanda was a street vendor selling yogurt, as she always did on Saturdays, and stopped by the neighbor's house. Not only was the gate ajar, Yolanda said, but across the cleanly swept concrete patio with giant palms, the front door was open as well. The neighbor was never that careless. I knocked on the gate, Yolanda told Isabel. I yelled her name, but there was no answer. When I get home, I'll give her a call, Isabel replied. They had been neighbors for years in the Felipe Carrillo Puerto district of Jalapa, the capital of the Mexican Gulf Coast state of Veracruz. The street Calle Privada Rodriguez Clara, everybody has like five names, uh, marked the bottom of the small urban canyon, probably carved out of centuries before mountain runoff that had been trained into an open sewage canal. Boxy stucco homes lined the road. Most residents settled there 30 or 40 years ago before there was even pavement, and they had to jump the canal to cross the street. As their earnings increased, the families expanded their humble bungalows over time, giving the houses a look of skewed toy building blocks. The streets parallel to Calle Provada, Rodriguez Clara, ran high above the canyon on the other side, reachable by concrete stairs built into the slopes. Rundown apartment buildings clinging to the canyon walls were nicknamed favelas after the hillside slums of Rio de Janeiro. The area was once considered marginal, a landing place for misfits and squatters, but over time grew it into a solidly middle-class barrio of small business owners, government workers, and teachers. On the path of Mexican upward mobility, their children studied engineering at the University of Veracruz just up the hill. Vagrants and drug users still gathered down the street at a rusted children's slide to get high. The neighborhood had its share of petty crime. Isabel Nunez knew that her neighbor was especially vigilant about security. She was a journalist, the Veracruz correspondent for the National Investigative Time, uh, Investigative Magazine Pro Proceso. The neighborhood, sorry. The neighbor told Isabel at one point that there were a lot of people who didn't like what she wrote, who wanted to erase her as though she never had named names. The two had a cordial relationship and sometimes the neighbor gave Isabel magazines. Sometimes Isabel watched the house when the neighbor was traveling for work. 
They also had their differences. The neighbor complained about the kids playing soccer in the street and about Isabel's son playing his music too loud. The neighbor told her family and friends that Isabel was noisy. She didn't like how Isabel always kept tabs on her from a second story window, which directly overlooked the neighbor's patio. In fact, when Isabel was getting ready for bed the night before, she noticed that from the same window that the gate was open and called her neighbor to let her know. The neighbor didn't answer. Or maybe she did and thanked Isabel and she would close it up. Then maybe Isabel went to bed. Or maybe Isabel stayed up after the call and saw her neighbor come out and close the gate but not lock it as if she were expecting someone. There were several versions of what Isabel Nunez saw and did on the night of April 27, 2012, depending on which court documents or which person you consulted. What is certain is that when Isabel arrived home the following afternoon, she knew something wasn't right. She called the neighbor's landline, no answer. She tried to call herself, no answer. Now she was worried. She decided to wait a little longer for her neighbor to appear, about 5 p.m., so she finally called 066, Mexican equivalent of 911. A woman answered. My neighbor's a journalist, Isabel told the dispatcher, and I noticed this morning that her door is partially opened, but when I called the house and her cell phone, I couldn't reach her. Could you send an officer, please? Call went out to patrol 1401 and as a possible robbery, 28 Calle Privada Rodriguez Clara. Four state police officer in blue uniforms showed up 25 minutes later. Two of them entered the neighbor's house, walking past the slightly open metal gate, pushing aside the metal door. Then one came back out and asked Isabel if she would accompany them inside. She agreed. The front door of the tiny bungalow opened to the living room which was set up as an office, and to Isabel appeared disheveled. From there, they passed into the kitchen on the left and then walked straight into the single bedroom where the dresser drawers were open and their contents dumped on the bed. Isabel's eyes followed the floor to a pair of legs jutting out from the bathroom. It was the neighbor lying on her back, arms outstretched on the marble pattern linoleum. Her head lay against the stone finish of the tub, her face to one side, a bloody cleaning rag around her neck. There was a blood stain on her brown vest and another on her orange blouse, the same clothing Isabel saw her wearing the day before, when they briefly greeted each other as Isabel took out the trash. The neighbor's jeans unbuttoned with the zipper halfway down had dust and blood spots on the knees. Is this Regina Martinez? The officer asked. Yes. Isabel said, and ran from the house in distress. The officer leaned down to feel the dead woman's wrist for a pulse, knowing he wouldn't find one. Then he called for backup. I am standing in front of the same iron gate, which is locked now. There's a taxi crammed into the patio. The bungalow looks abandoned, except for a light on near the front door and men's clothing drying on a line strung outside. There is no bell. I tried knocking on the gate. My knuckles made no sound and no one answers. I ring the bell at Isabel Nunez's house. I figure enough time has passed. Eight years, I'm wrong. A second floor window with a metal mullion slides open. I look up at the lavender stucco facade to see a small middle-aged woman with a round face and dyed brown hair. What do you want? She said crossly. 
I think one of my earlier times in Mexico when I went to study Spanish and I stayed with a family in an ample house surrounded by a garden and big wall. When anyone rang the bell, they never answered the door, but rather hollered, Quien? Who? From inside the house. It was a way to screen unwanted visitors. The street I'm standing on is the patchy pavement and hard mud. The late afternoon sky is gray, this work holiday Monday, and the day I decide to approach Isabel, thinking that the street would be quiet and I won't, I won't call too much attention to myself. The water in the nearby canal whooshes from the recent rain. I'm working on a project about this area, and I'd like to talk to you, I say vaguely. I don't want to yell the subject of my inquiry up to the second story. I'm trying to be discreet. About what? Again, cross. Why me? I tell her I prefer not to shout the details and ask if I could come down and talk. She stares back. I have no choice. It's about your neighbor. What neighbor? I nod my head towards the iron gate where I'm standing, which abuts Isabel's home. And from the corner of my eye, I see a young, dark-haired man with a similar round face watching from the second floor balcony. I don't talk about that, she says. I tell her it's a project about her neighbor's life and her work as a valiant reporter. No, she insists. It was a terrible hit for us. I can imagine, I say. If she were standing next to me, that would have been my entree to ask how. But from 12 feet below, it is impossible. We don't talk about it, she repeats sternly. That chapter is closed. Okay, and so that's that's the preface in the first chapter of In the Mouth of the Wolf. A Murder, a Cover-Up, and the True Cost of Silencing the Press by Catherine Corcoran. Would anybody like to call in to discuss what we read or what I read briefly? Oh, hey, I'm so glad you decided to attend. Happy New Year. Happy anyway, New Year. Very good. The, uh, what you were saying about the, the, pre, the, the journalist and how they're getting threatened and how they have to go through all that thing and nobody cares. That is yeah, the, set, the, the setting the, is Juarez. The setting is Juarez. Yeah, that is usually the attitude of, of the government of Mexico. And, uh, you know, it's sad, but it's true. And I think in Latin America, they have the highest number of killings. And they they show it. And they haven't done anything really to, to stop it. Uh, it's going to continue, unfortunately. There, there's really no interest. All they tell them is they either have to write under another pen name or, you know, you got to learn to not speak the truth. Otherwise, the cartels will come and they'll knock you out sooner than later. So now a lot of the journalists, they have to go into hiding. You see, we don't see that here in America. In fact, I would say, and not to advocate for violence, we need it. With the type of press we have, a very wicked, lying press, we kind of need a cartel over here to put them on check. But that's not the thing. In Mexico, actually, they actually, they don't play American politics. They have their own system of uh, how how they conduct uh, when it comes to news reporting. But the problem with them is not lying. The problem with them is saying too much, speaking facts, you know? 
So and it's sad, but American journalists can learn something from Mexican journalists about speaking well, truth. I mean, there, there must be some truth to that. Why? Because when I started reading the preface, you know, uh-huh. towards the end of the preface, you know, she was like, we are, we should go in there. We're wonderful AP journalists. We have great security. Um, you know, this is the first Okay, gracias. Sorry about that. They were handing me um, <laughs> the, the problem is, is that we have press limitations that are coming from the government right now. And what killed this, this journalist was the Mexican government. So she's got a twofold problem. She's got the narcos on one side trying to keep quiet, and she's got uh, the government on the other, and sometimes they're the same people. We're going to go deal with Juarez, like, on Sunday. Our president's going to be in El Paso. Now, it wasn't that long ago that uh, there was a cartel war over the region, and uh, somebody won. And during that time, you know, the houses in El Paso in certain areas, you know, it wasn't as safe as, as build. <clears throat> Windows started getting shot out. People started getting harassed. You know, it's it started to feel a little bit more like Juarez than El Paso, Texas. Now, El Paso has a reputation for being the safest place, one of the safest, most, you know, civilized places in, in Texas. Um, but not so much now. And I think it's because the cartels are moving in to commandeer that whole area on the border. And I've done Colin. Sheila. Mm-hmm. Remember when you had Phil Drake? Yeah, I do. And yeah, he that's that's his story right there. You're saying he you're saying Phil's story in another way without mentioning Phil, but that's his story. To be honest, the the cartel ran him out uh, out of where he lived. He had his own ranch and everything, and these bastards took over. And I I don't know where the how Greg Abbott or anybody in 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 uh, state assembly, or you know. Well, the, they, they the finally tech- got shamed into you know getting the national guard down to El Paso and, and throwing up some razor wire. We'll clap clap for them. You know, it took them a while, but you know they did it, and, and it was a hell of a lot more than Biden would ever do. So, um, but it was needful. And so I'm not going to try to shame Greg Abbott if he's the only one doing anything on behalf of the United States and Texas, um, now, to, to protect now, us from I, based the Based on the words of uh, Phil Drake, I know he was in North Carolina. I did not know that till I heard it directly. Mm-hmm. I know he was a Texas man. So I was like, okay. But I never thought they ran him out of town. That that sounded like something out of yeah. The NGOs beat him up. Uh, yeah, there, there was a there was an NGO that committed to a false arrest. They beat the living snot out of him, and uh, they held him in local jail. And so they couldn't. You know, people don't want to hear this. They don't want to believe that the NGOs could be possible of such violence. But they yeah, do it all the time. And, now, regarding uh, I had another guy on here, uh, uh-huh. Jose Vargas, 
who is a California native, and he came here to work on Texas politics, and he told uh-huh. me that uh, if you tried to report vagrancy on any of the migrants that were trying to, to get anywhere near a bus, then you would be reported. You would They would call the local police on you. <laughs> wow. Sick. For trying to do the right thing. Now, in regards to NGOs and uh, when you had talked about, sorry if I go off topic, ESG, something came up regarding BlackRock on the news not long ago. Sorry, probably. And uh, that supposedly Texas senators were pressuring uh, BlackRock for doing, for not doing its work regarding ESG. And then later on, they found out as they've been investigating, not only BlackRock, there was another company as well uh, at that level. I think it was USB. Up, yeah. They ended up finding you, out you, that... UBS, sorry. UBS, right? USB is a contactable <laughs> and, and they ended up finding out that they weren't really doing nothing. They're, they're all book. They're all paper. They're all PR before the government, before the United Nations, whatever. They're all, yeah, we're on board. But they really had no intentions of doing anything about it. Now, my yeah. question is, why is Texas senators moving towards pushing ESG? Well, that's a good question. Um, uh, there, it looks like latency, and I tried to get Brian Hughes to come on the program to ask and answer about ESG. But there's there's a whole there's a Texas two step happening there, and I'm not really sure what it's involving exactly. Now, oil is a really important um, commodity for the state of Texas. And it has put a lot of state senators right where they're at. Um, and it is in part a large reason for our national success that we have the oil industry here. Um, but it's not like other places that it, it doesn't have the, the land problems that other places do if it were to be... It doesn't have an ecosystem that's going to be quite as corruptible as, say, like the Pacific Northwest. If you dumped, you know, 12 trillion gallons of, of uh, ocean-borne, um, you know, oil into, the, into the, the sound, there would be a huge ecological impact. You know, if it's dumped onto a dry desert prairie, it'll just kind of soak into the ground and be kind of poisonous for three and a half weeks. And that's it. So to do roughnecking out here is not going to have the same, you know, all this. I mean, it's bad, but it's not going to it's just not the same. Now, I think that that people were very upset over what happened in the Gulf of Mexico. I certainly was. Mm-hmm. Um, but that was a problem that that was a BP issue and that was an Obama issue. BP standing for bills paid. Bills paid. <laughs> More like British Petroleum, but yeah. Yeah. Bills paid. That's what that's what mattered. I that's how I heard it from one of the newscasters. He goes, make sure that BP stands for bills paid. Mm. You know, because at the end of the day it's the people that suffer, you know? They're not able and to fish through water. Still dealing with, with- some parts of that you know it's not not anywhere near as bad as it was in 2010 of course Mm -hmm. but they're still dealing with you know flotsam from the oil spill 
Wow. And there's oil spills. I've, I covered oil spills on a previous program um, that I did, uh, waking up Orwell. And it, oil spills are underreported, but they're going on all over the planet. And so I, I, oil is, is messy. It's a dirty fuel. Um, but it's needful because we don't have any type of uh, ready conversion that is going to reach the rural landscapes the way that oil, uh, oil combustion machining the cars has had. And it would, it would strand a lot, a huge number of people with no resources. They haven't made um, battery-powered transportation and cars resilient enough in order for, uh, you know, a mandated conversion like these people in um, the World Economic Forum want. So I'm a pragmatist when it comes to, you know, if it can't reach people who are reliant, if they're stuck out in the boonies and their only method of transportation is a gas-fueled truck or a diesel-fueled truck, you can't, you can't make those people conform to your demands. You can't make a, a you know, Philip Drake who's living, you know, on the edge you know, doing farm work, he's renting his land and he's, you know, producing his crops and, you know, sometimes it's better, sometimes it's worse, but that, that's single business. That's like, I think uh, sooner than later, hopefully sooner than later, our politician and, and world leaders and all those idiots over at the world economic and Davos and all that, they have to recognize like it or not, Oil is here to stay, whether they like it or not. It should, it should, just, it should be improved on. Let me give you an example of why, logically, electric vehicles cannot survive. I don't know if you heard of the story. It came out on the web. A guy who was going with his sister on their rented Tesla. They had to stop by. I don't know, somewhere back east. They had to stop by and mm-hmm. recharge six times because the battery went, went low because of the cold, cold weather. That's not feasible for most people. That's not yeah, even reliable. There's, there's regulatory sabotage of the of the of the electric vehicle industry. So there's two sides of this this problem. Is the, the oil industry is extremely powerful and they don't want competitors. And then there's the other side where you know, the EV batteries are not uh, they're not as resilient because the government doesn't allow them to be as resilient. And then, of course, the resources and the global resources to manufacture the batteries are also in a very tenuous place. The technologies well, are that, highly technical. Not only that, Shayla, what about all the destruction? They, they complain about fracking. What about all the raping of the land just to get lithium? Uh, you know that, that documentary? It wasn't directly by, by Michael Moore, which he's a leftist, of course, but a, another guy. He, he did Planet of the Human. That did it for me. That did it right there. All the evidence I need of why is it that going into just to try to going green, not that it's bad. It's bad the way they're implementing it. It's bad the way they're destroying the planet. They don't tell you about that. They don't tell you about how they how they destroy the land that is later on not even usable. The companies come in, take all they can, and they leave the, the you know, the, 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 the land. Nobody ever talks about biofuel. 
Well, exactly. Taylor was going to be the rage. It was going to save our, our planet. It was going to save us. But why did it take off? Do you wonder? That's there's a good some question. There's kind of too. witchcraft going on there. Or mm-hmm. there's regulatory suppression. There's competitive suppression. And people who produce biofuel, it's a cheap, mm-hmm. available fuel that you can get from McDonald's cooking oil. Exactly. Well, well I, I, I recognize the biofuel you're talking about, Shayla, as uh, the veggie oil, uh, the, old, the, the other leftover used oil from the venue restaurants that right. usually pay to pay to have it stocked out and, and taken, you know, and disposed of. Well, you come in and you fill that, that place. They don't have to pay you. They just come in. You have the machinery. You suck up all, all the oil. You go to each restaurant and you feel you you, you basically uh, supply yourself. But you, now you have to go home and clean it up and that. Now, to, to, to the average American, that that's painstaking. That's only for those that are really into doing that, I would say. Now, if you have an actual, uh, let's say, biofuel uh, gas station, that would be feasible. It would be cheaper. It would be doable for a lot of these companies, restaurants, because they, now they don't have to pay to have all that oil sucked out. Now somebody comes in for free, takes out the oil, and filters it, you cleans it up. It, there, there is an episode of American Green about a guy who, this is a spectacular story. This is a spectacular story. He had a, uh, he just, he started a, biofuel refinery in utah so the is a supply chain issue or a supply and development issue it's not like the health food or the you you know the health food industry right yeah people still go to the stores they they manually you know, buy a cup of, of organic beans, organic nuts, um, you know, their own flowers. They scoop it out of the bins and they put it, they measure it into a little bag. They write the code on it and they take it to the front. It's so much less like that now because there's, there's a lot of uh, food processors that's modernized. It got uh, endorsements in the 90s, and it really got picked up for packaging and, and redistribution. But this, this just did not happen for the biofuel industry at all. It didn't happen. Wow. Okay. Now, there's a lot of rich greens that could develop it. Won't. They lived in L.A. I saw it. I saw them out at the, the Santa Monica uh main street you know hippie fairs they were out there you know oh come get come get some uh some some oil conversion you know get get your old bmw and man i was on board this is this is at the peak at peak um inconvenient truth (laughs) wow (laughs) yeah this is peak inconvenient truth you know gore vidal you know all the progressives were you know high on you know, green methane. They're like, we're gonna, we're gonna change it. We're gonna lower the temperature of the planet. You know, we're gonna do it. I was there, uh, right there on the Kool Aid. Yes, yes, we're gonna do it. And um, and for some reason, they didn't get the development, and it did not take off, bro. People and this American Greed story 
was about this this crazy uh, Mormon natalist who got involved in getting government grants. He abused the grant system and got millions of dollars and just kind of moved moved the shell appropriations to other places. And he he just built the government for millions and millions of dollars. And then he got a Turk involved. And the Turk started to extort him. So he started making uh, remand requests from the United States government for several hundred millions of dollars at a time. Okay, so that flagged the FBI, finally. To, to look into his altruistic green uh, green uh, biofuel refining business out in the middle of Utah with no customers. <laughs> wow. Yes. It was a Turk. A Turkic national. And and uh, it did not go well. They both served time. It was American green. So <laughs> There's it, always it some, some sinister dark story behind all these greens. Okay. Only, he only had 20 children. That's all. <laughs> That's all? 20? Oh, only 20. Wow. Only 20 Mormon kids. He's trying to get his own planet. <laughs> I guess he was trying to beat Elon or something, you know? No, but it, <laughs> is, it, it, it's... Is Elon it's a, Mormon? Does anybody know? No, no, he's not religious. Uh, he, I don't think he's quite atheist, but but he, 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 is a, he is a lover. For a lot of women. <laughs> he believes in populating Mars one day. <laughs> I hate to see that. <laughs> I hate to see uh, Elon's face all over the place. He's, he's trying to do this. Like, no, do it with me. Come on. Make more people yeah. with me. <laughs> he just wants to have his face plastered all over the damn place. You know? So poor kids, that's for them. They're gonna be hated for the longest, you know. But what? I mean, but it's crazy. I don't necessarily think I. I don't hate his children. I don't know his children. His children have their own, their own destinies. They're gonna exorbitantly rich, worried father. I'm sure. Guy's overly responsible for like, you know, what? Seven companies or more. <laughs> exactly. Probably, oh yeah, and, and Twitter. And, now he's a and then along along all his kids, he's got a trans girl, I think, a trans daughter, a trans uh, a trans man daughter, or something like that. Yeah, that's gonna so be. He, he, he's got a complicated yeah. life, you know. Chelsea Manning hooked up with his, his ex <laughs> here in Austin, and I think wow. is actually um, also comes from his parents as well, so they had quite a bit. Of I think as the. Uh, well, As that's your American. Do that's your American confirm, story. Can't confirm that information. I cannot confirm that information. Hey, so Julian wants to come up and talk. I saw you for like ten seconds. She's like, "Ooh, story ooh, now." Yeah. Okay, I'm gonna push you up in the speakers. That way we can talk. Okay. Okay, and then we're gonna take Julia. Julia, we're going to make it the next caller. Hi, Masha. Hi, Miranda. I'm so glad you came out. Hey. I was going to say, or Nick Cannon. Because we had like five or six children in the last like two years. Wow. It's a trend right now for, for, for rich guys to make a lot of babies. Yeah. 
And then I was just like, yeah, Vlad. Like, when I read, like, a headline about Elon Musk and a daughter, I was like, wait a second. He doesn't have, I don't think, any girls. I no, think they're all boys. He has, 100% like, boys. eight to ten sons. And I'm like, that's just not natural. Or I'm not sure about the last two, like, those, like, ones that, like, he had with someone who worked with him and it was like really secret that like leaked out i don't know if we know their gender was it a love child julia i don't know yeah but she had twins yeah if if it was if it was within (laughs) if it was within the company something was up i think she was a manager or something and and they just fell for each other he had just left his his last wife and but there was like you know what I'll, t- I'll tell you something about was it, it a rebound <laughs> was it a rebound love I think it's possible it was rebound like... love it was rebound lust in the the moment of heat you know you got your heart broken you got this beautiful damsel in distress right in front of you and what do i do with her well i'm gonna knock her up <laughs> and you know she's not gonna say no he's the man with the big wallet most women will say yes so let's be honest. Let's be honest. Most American women will drop them quickly just to please the, the boss. Okay, even if it means getting I pregnant. That, I don't know about that. But come on, come on. A very liberal America. Maybe if it was in a you Victorian period. You can fantasize about that. I'm just telling you the facts of life. That's all. I'm, yeah. I'm a reporter. I'm a journalist. I'm just saying the facts. You're, you're, don't don't kill the messenger. Don't kill the messenger. So, Julia, what do you think about this this issue with Mexico? Like with the with the dead journalist and you know the dead journalist of the month club. So, are you reading a a book from someone else, or are, is this a book that you wrote? No, this is a book uh, by an AP journalist. Oh. I'm sorry Masha took off because she probably knows that we're off topic and I'm just taking oh. calls and entertaining gotcha. you. As I, sorry. As I do. <laughs> don't worry about it. I back. really like the story. I was like, I don't know if this is fiction, but it's really good writing. So, Yeah, it was from an AP journalist, uh, Catherine Corcoran. She came, uh, she's a U.S. journalist who who moved to Mexico to do reporting uh, on the Mexican Bureau. And she discovered that um, there's basically an underground war going on in Latin America against journalists, specifically in Mexico. And one of the most dangerous places in the world to report right now is Mexico. Yeah, thinking about that, that would be terrifying. <laughs> so, but she's like out there banging on doors, asking about the neighbors. Like, I don't know. I would. Well, I'm the not- neighbor was actually one of the people she worked with. It was a reporter oh. and friend who had been murdered. And- oh my gosh! Okay, so if it was your own friend, yeah, I would be. No, no, it wasn't my friend. It was, it was. I was definitely reading from from a book, and it was kind of a whodunit. It's it's a one case murder, kind of like the Mexican Khashoggi. Yeah, you know the problem is is that the Mexican government is notoriously embedded with cartels. They're kind of like silent partners and mm-hmm. managing uh, the internal affairs of Mexico. 
which is yeah. why you can get, you know, Biden would call, let's say Biden did do this. Let's say Biden called Anlo and said, listen, I know you're having a problem with all those people coming up from Central America. Mm-hmm. Well, why don't you just put them on army trucks and, and expedite them to the border for me? But nobody wants to believe that, but that was widely reported in Mexico. Oh, my gosh. Mm-hmm. So now he's got to get down here. Because I I have urged my other U.S. journalist friends to start looking into Mexican reporting over the, over the Christmas break. Wow. Mexican. Hmm. And then I took it upon myself because... You know, I just wanted to do it, that this is such an important book, time. It's time. It's time for this book. You know, all the dead Mexican journalists who never get any daylight. Well, maybe it's now is a good time to tell their story. This is this is Juarez, which is basically just over the river mm-hmm. over, on the other side, um, like not a mile. I mean, there's just a, a river strip of river between Juarez where people hang from the freeways and are killed by the, the narcos and us. Mm. Well, so, I loved, I love the book. So thanks for sharing that. I'll, I'll keep reading it. Um, I'm going to try to read it. Uh, like I did the Julian Assange one by Dylan Smeltzer. And, um, it takes a lot of courage for me to read that book, like this book. It, it takes a lot of courage because it, it's tough to read about people being killed and knowing that they're going to die, that they're real people. And that's what's going on. But I'm, you know, can you imagine being proximal to actually, you know, that level of death? No, that's nuts. Cause like take any average American, like that, that's something we watch on TV, you know, it's not something that really seems to exist in our life. It's like a, but for other people, it's the reality, you know, it's background noise in in our country. I think we take it for granted. Like this is not background noise. This is actual death and it's like, it's like a reality. Yeah. It's super intimidating when you're, when your neighbors are drug dealers, they want to kill you. Yeah, that's insane to really think about. Okay, Julia, so uh, thanks for calling in. Yeah, thanks. Good to talk to you. Yeah, Yeah, come by anytime. Okay. Okay, Vladi. Do you have any final thoughts? We've got about six minutes left in the hour before we take off. I see Sally's here with us. Maybe I should try to invite her to speak. Sally, do you want to come up here and talk about Mexican geopolitics? Of course she does. Welcome to the program, Sally. Is it Sally or Sally? Sally. Hi. Sally, thank you. I, I don't have much to say. That's the truth. <laughs> I, I didn't want to be rude, but that I'm not that well informed in Mexican politics. I know that there is a lot of violence against journalists that wasn't being paying that much attention. And there is a lot of uh, cartels that are moving, right? Because yep. Yep. 
yeah, there is some neighborhoods that are being very tough. And so that happened in Brazil when they wanted to clean the favelas, that what happened was they just moved to another place, the drug dealers and the cartels. So, yeah, sorry, I, I can't tell you more about that. I don't want to say something. Well, I mean, I, I imagine it's pretty similar, if not the same. It's the same type of people doing the same type of things. Well, that there is very there is differences, especially in the geography in Brazil, um, about where they are located. They are much more hard to get. They are on the higher ground, right? Like that gives this. Uh, they are in the top of mountains, right? So and they have these huge guns. I think the cartels in Mexico much maybe plot will like tell me that they are much bigger. There are more. They are, the cartels in Brazil, they're very intrinsic, very present in the favela's life, right? But maybe Vlad will correct me, but I think that the Mexico ones are much more, I mean, they, they extend much more into society. Yeah, I'm going to believe that that's true because uh, they know. have their own mercenary forces. They have, there were reports that I read uh, in spring of this year that they have their own paid mercenary contractors that are supposed to be able to protect them from our uh, special forces. <laughs> yes. Uh, there is this guy that I'm from Argentina and we allowed everything in, right? Like everybody. And we, there was this big mess because it was forbidden for this guy to get into the country. And so the press was, oh, let him in. We are discriminating. And, well, the immigration told the story that this guy was not just trafficking drugs from Colombia, but they were doing submarines. So can you imagine the money that you have to move to have submarines to deal drugs? It's They can afford them. And they, they can, can definitely afford, afford, like, a fleet uh-huh. of them now that Biden has opened the borders. Yes, and once they take hold, like, here there's a city that has a port that is called Rosario, and they are... They took that city and the, the, the mayor was saying, man, we, we're, these people in prison, we're, we're giving them home office. It's like they, they don't care about anything because they have like a 70-year sentence, right? And they're operating the same shit through prison, like moving money. And what are, what are they going to punish them with what? 20 years more? They are already going to die in jail. So it's... I don't see many ways to tackle that other than legalizing as Petro is planning. Right. And, and um, even that, that's a very hard process, right? Like, I, I don't think it's just not going that. Oh, I, I think legalize. That they, <laughs> so. It's not, there, it, there's so much more involved uh, than, than legalizing the drugs. I mean, there are drugs that are legal and they're still Let's let's make an example. Like there was some reporting that about the Pacific Northwest, and that's where I lived for ten years. But I couldn't get away from Mexican cartel activity in the Pacific Northwest. Wow. There were people from El Paso that were working in my building that was that were telling me about Mexico. Then just six hours north of me in Vancouver was a giant money laundering operation for Sinaloa. 
and all the border cartels that needed cash transfers mm. and the people's liberation army of china and their veterans came over and squatted in in vancouver well they weren't squatting what they would do is they they buy these posh houses and then they would you know have these backgammon casinos yeah that's and then classic, launder right? all the money and so i spent mm, i don't know three and a half weeks you know reading the exhaustive uh you know investigative reports of sam cooper on this network you know which people did did listen they did did, did tune in you know, and I did publish them on Substack. Half of them were deleted by the staff, but, you know. Uh, yes. You know, because they were found offensive or, you know, because I was discussing money laundering and drug activity, you know, that. Well, know, that, by, goes by, hand, that goes in hand in hand. What you were mentioning, like real estate, money laundering, drug cartels go hand in hand. Like Rosario, right? That The city I was mentioned that was took over, like the building in that city that there are small buildings than people right because they had to load ah, the money and they do it go. in real estate the shelves the shelves like the, the, yes. the cover businesses right yes and there is so much money involved and so much violence that they they take hold of government i don't know it's it's very hard it's very oh body's gone he took off <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> I uh, but i like no we get along with you Vlad, I don't think it's me. I was going to. No, no, no I think it's it's possible that you know it's like we're we're at the top of the hour, and I I the, probably should hold to my to my um, but I want to let you have have the the end of the conversation because I think no, what you're saying is super important and very real. No, I just want to recommend you to if you can listen to the the there is is in English also the Petro, you know, the president of Colombia the Petro speech in the UN about what he talks about. He talks about that, right? Exactly about uh, cocaine, about fighting. Uh, and Would you help me? Because I don't know about this. I don't know about this, the speech. Can you help yeah. us by, by going to get the speech and putting it in the comments section? Yeah, yeah, I, I'll do that. Hold on a second. That it's very it's easy to find because it's in the UN. UN. And it's it's translated just because it wants to. And of course, you know, I'm sure that the 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 UN or Europe were like, you and your your third world problems. Why can't you clean up your mess? You know. Wow, what? He yeah, says I mean, that's hard. how they are. They're like, nah, 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 third world problems. Uh. What he's saying it's very very hard because it's okay. So it's the whole speech. Um, here, okay, here. Here it is. Oh, um, and we lost Julia. <laughs> United Nations. I got here. I, I think you'll find it here. And then you'll pick. Hey, buddy. We're, I'm sorry we lost uh, you. You came back. Yeah, what he says is very interesting because what he says is, like, people here are not dying for overdose. Like, people are dying for overdose in the in the U.S. People here are dying because of the contamination that is used. Oh yeah, grow because narcotraffic. So if I legalize it here tomorrow, I won't have like I will have a lot of revenue from taxes, and I won't have to tackle a huge deal of overdoses because people here are not the main users. So you know he puts it that way, and it's yeah, it kind of makes sense. I don't know if <laughs> there is 
I'm sure there are bigger forces than him. Sadly. Well, I mean, it's such a big surprise to, to the people who are dealing with it. You know, they're, they're inland. You know, they think that these are, these are you know, third world con- problems that are way over there. Uh, but unfortunately, we're being poisoned by precursor chemical as mm-hmm. a form of covert, you know, narco warfare against the United States laundered by China. China's got partnership with a lot of Latin American governments who've gone communist. Let's just be honest here. Well, and China has narco communism of- is is a form of of uh, narco tyranny and narco communism because they don't mind using slaves, which puts me back into the Pacific Northwest again. Okay, uh, they had. Uh, like illegal grows, illegal grow farms in Oregon and in Northern California and probably in places in Washington where they were, you know, they were enslaving white people and Mexican, um, you know, migrant labor for to, to work on illegal marijuana grows. And marijuana is legal. It's regulated by the state, but these were illegal grows out in the middle of very rural mm-hmm. places where they didn't check them. Yeah, no, that's, that's like they can find it with a drone, right? Like it's so easy to find them, those those plantations that exist, yes, a lot. But what I'm going to say is that there's a lot of right-wing, <laughs> go- like right-wing governments making deals with China in South America. Like You're not wrong. Also, like you're, everybody's... You're not wrong. When you're, there's you're... money, like Uruguay, for instance, you don't get more right-wing than the one that is now... In Uruguay, right? You get more right wing, but not in Uruguay. <laughs> that was like, my point. He's the right wing of Uruguay, and he's making deals with China, so Paraguay as well. Yeah, everybody sees money and they forget the wing. I think yeah. sometimes. <laughs> yeah, but they don't understand that you know China plays a long game, and you know they're there to seduce people out of of whatever they have. Well, the and, one that and that's pro- exactly what's happening. They're taking the land. They are taking uh, the the minerals. They are taking the mineral rights. Mm-hmm. They're taking the the freeways. They're taking the transport. You know, in Seattle, they had a. What did I tell you? Um, I had a you know a personal story about calling up you know the the ports, the port of Seattle, mm-hmm. and it was it was a Chinese national who answered the phone, and because I didn't have import export business, he hung up on me, and that's a festival <laughs> of the state of 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 washington yeah that's nobody there will report farah to the to the federal government meaning like they're building they were building an enormous huawei skyscraper in the middle of downtown bellevue and people were like no 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 i couldn't find a single foreign contractor that had registered to not one not one construction company not one anything that had registered on on for Farah. Okay, so We're that's kind of that. oh, that corruption, company. my friend. Absolutely, that's yeah, yeah. And you know what is funny that you were saying about like the one that is speaking about that the same thing as you are saying. Like we have to be careful with China. We have to get together because it's too big. We have to negotiate as a block. Is is the is the you won't find more left wing right? Is Pepe Mujica? He's saying, like, okay, we're not being smart. Like, China is huge. So we cannot deal as separate countries, right, with China because it will happen the same as always happens. They will take advantage. So 
but yeah, there is a lot of investment here, for instance, that they, they, they had many steps like, okay, we're going to invest in taking the lithium and then in the batteries, right? Like the second mm. part never mm. gets here. It's just a lithium taken away. So yeah. I yeah. Brazil has, has enormous lithium mines. In fact, um... no, it's, um, no, Bolivia, Argentina, and Chile has the lithium mine. That's the lithium. It's okay. 80% of the world. Brazil has oil. I guess. Celie, okay. uh, do you mind if I push you into the speaker column? I think Red wants to talk. Oh, of course. Okay. No, that way we can continue the conversation. You know, you don't have to. Vlad is very respectful. He doesn't talk when other people are talking, but um, but he's he's free to jump in, and and I I hope he knows that. Good evening, Red. Hey. Welcome to the program. Hey. Yeah. I. I... I just tuned in, so I don't really know the long game. I uh, I saw Sele was um, hi Red coming in here, and so I popped it up. Uh, well, but- welcome, welcome. Um, I'm going to be doing a reading of the book in the mouth of the wolf, um, and basically this is a about the the murder of a journalist, a cover up, and the true cost of silencing the press in the, in light of the Twitter files. Um, Where was this journalist? Where is this? In Mexico. This is about Mexican journalism and how deadly it is. Mm-hmm. And the, the basically the coordination between the government and the narco cartels to kill people that are inconvenient. Yes, and I telling understand. telling inconvenient truth, truth. I understand. But what I wanted to ask you, what I wanted to, um, um, you were saying as you were talking about China, you were saying, and they're taking this and they're taking the turnpikes and they're taking this and this and this. Well, we're selling it to them, so they're not really taking it. Right. I mean, they're, they're deal-making, meaning, like, it's no longer really, you know, I'll make an example, because you're right. Yeah, um, it, yeah, it's not, right. without, it's not without our agreement. Right. And, no, and I mean, that, I, I, it's barely an agreement, because these are public roadways, well, and, and, of course, uh, I'll take an example. In, in Washington State, which is one of the most simpy like supine whatever you want to do china governments in america um they have the toll roads and the toll roads actually all the revenue and and they they play who has the toll roads china bought them china bought the toll i understand roads. they bought them here in ohio also but it's Ooh. not without our willingness we sold them we sold those rights you know and, and I'm not going to say that, you know, did, did they do it with your consent? My <laughs> personal consent? No. Yeah. But the, no, no. the board. And I'm, I'm going to I'm asking, you know, the just little because the government board. made a deal on your behalf does right, right, not right. mean, you know, right. those but, are the types of things that are problematic. And, you know, those are the types of things, you know, involved with NAFTA that are problematic. Uh, which reminds and, me of the other thing that I'd like to throw into this yeah. is... And Sele probably could anticipate that I might do this. Is um, the uh, the overthrow of uh, Castillo, and it was just revealed a couple days ago, I believe, mm-hmm. that um, that our U.S. ambassador to Peru had a meeting with the what's his title, Minister of Defense, I believe, of Peru the day before Castillo was overthrown, and Castillo had talked to the military and talked to the um, 
Department of Inquiry. And like he'd gone the formal route. They've already tried to overthrow him twice. And he was putting that, I don't know if it's called an executive order, but whatever, to oust the um, the council before, you know, so they the could oust him. And and wow. again, it's it's, you know, what the people's will is versus, you know, some unelected board, you know, just like a board of board of directors at a corporation, you know. Yeah, that's mainly Fujimori's family that they are yes. leading. But yes. yeah, yeah, one thing that I, I would like to add that is like, uh, Sheila, there is this thing like, with all the worries that I have with such a big country with China, until now, they haven't been as damaging as the U.S. has been to us in, in resources taking and and when we don't agree or business don't Not like, yet. you know, like Not showing yet. up governments and stuff like that. But so. they, they are takers, my friend. Uh, right, right, right. Okay, so no, they are yeah, or they aren't? They are but takers. The U.S. is worried. already there. The U.S., we're already there taking no, and I, making decisions and sending bribes and making threats. I know. That's what. No, I mean, I'm aware of what happens in Latin America. I had I had spent, you know, time in my childhood as a. I mean, look, you need to look no further than the Panama Canal. You know, we, quote unquote, invaded in 1989, but we had four military bases there already. How can you invade a place that you have four American military bases? And how about all the the labor assassinations, the agricultural labor assassinations that we've done in Colombia just over the last few years? And we've been doing it forever virtually. Well, I'm not I'm not sure I agree with just because we did it doesn't mean I agree with it. And just because my government paid for it doesn't mean I agree with it. And oh, just course. because it happened doesn't mean that, you know, the American people knew that it happened. And no, no, and I don't think that you should blame any citizen for what their government does. Like, that's ridiculous. That's absurd. And yeah. what I what I think is important is to to see the past and recognize it. I don't know to try try to avoid it in the future, right? Uh, that that I think is is the important part. Uh, and yeah, what I was saying is like. Though, but don't yeah, trade China one imperialist for another. Hold on, hold on. Let's see, Lee, say what. What's Well, I mean, I'm the host here, but but I need to to at least say that don't trade one imperialist for another one. Exactly. China, exactly. China's another one. My worry is that that uh, that my worry is that I'm very so. My, the thing is though, I'm I'm very worried that doesn't happen the same, right? Like not being. Because it, it's a huge, it's a huge, huge country and it's very expansionist. That's the truth. So it's, so it, it, we, we know now it happened before. So we should be aware. I'm not saying that we should avoid every Chinese, uh, like we have to be careful. That, that's, that's my, I'm worried about it. Just that. Be, be vigilant. Them. Don't let them just exactly whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's 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 exactly the point. That doesn't repeat the same thing. Yeah. So my thing is that I don't focus on China or the whatever. What I focus on is imperialism. Oh. You know, like the characteristic of the thing, not you know, not the finger pointing individuals, but the thing. You know. 
Well, which is the imperialism and authoritarianism yeah. and fascism and, you know, the, all the this. The only step that I've seen taken, like, I hope it comes well, like, lately, is the the foreign minister, the economic minister of, of Brazil and the one in Argentina got together. And mm -hmm. apparently this long plan about uh, commerce in our coin and not in dollars. Is being go is going to take place. So for that would be a huge relief, like having our because we do most of our commerce to Brazil. So that you don't know how much relief and and how much dependence take away from us. So maybe those small things are a lot more revolutionary than than others that. You know, in that regard, I want you. I want you, ladies, to know what a big treat it is for me to be able to get on here and talk about Latin American foreign policy with you, with anyone, to be honest, because it, they kind of treat it like a, you know, I don't know, an illegitimate child. They don't want to see that it exists. <laughs> yeah, you know, they don't want to see. Exactly. You know, it, it's really, it's really sad and stupid and wrong um the way that uh, you know and the closer you get to the border the more they treat the communities like that there are american communities in south texas that are treated like you know gutter states by the federal government and i i mean it's pathetic and shameful and wrong and i'm glad that mr uh Mr. Flyover Delaware Pants is coming down here to, to look at us. Um, but, you know, there's a whole border. And he's, he's chosen El Paso because probably because it's, it's safe or it has a reputation for being safe. It isn't. And I think that that's the most important part of this, this debate that's going to happen is that El Paso is no longer a safe place. And the reason why it isn't safe is because he opened the borders uh, with his foreign policy. And this isn't good for anyone. And now that that Chicago put in a phone call to the White House and said, OK, send us some FEMA funds to manage this this outcropping, these millions of unwashed people who are flooding into our towns because Greg Abbott just keeps putting them on trucks to get here. It's like, well, if you, you ask for this, Joe Biden, you know, and now the cartels are, you know, fattened monsters, giant extortionist krakens, like parked on, you know, U.S.-Mexico territories. I mean, they're just prime. They're prime for a war. And they sit there and they taunt our Border Patrol agents. You know, and, and they put everybody in, in harm's way and in danger. And, of course, you know, everybody's heard about it by now. It was like a, a taboo thing to talk about it in 2020, that there was child raping going on and human sex trafficking going on, you know. But this is, you know, now it's just like they say it every night because these, these armbands just are littered like damn confetti and flotsam all over the Rio Grande. And this is, this is our life. This is our life in Texas. And it doesn't go away because they decide to look in the opposite direction. It keeps happening and it will keep happening until it craps on their doorstep. Literally. That's what's happening to Joe Biden. There is stool 
on the doorsteps of D.C. politicians and D.C. bureaucrat workers in Washington, D.C. Migrant stool is going in their yards. That's what's happening. I, what, wow, what you're describing is, it, it, it's not, it's usually not reported, right? By, because it isn't I, even reported now. It is, yeah. they are so ashamed of what's happening. The White House press corps and the local press in, in DC are not going to report this. They're not going to say there's a bunch of vagrant migrants meandering all over DC. They're not going to say that because it makes our country look like we're a bunch of retards. Well, but you, you know what caused You know what's caused all this migration? We go into other places, we exploit the shit out of it, we poverty make, we war make, we this and that make, and people are forced out of, you know, I mean, their homeland that, it, it's not their homeland, the region, there's, there's the place. There's two sides of this. I'm going to hear your argument, and then I have a rebuttal. We build, we build dams. We, we flood, we flood areas. We, you know, it's all this, this capitalist development. And we in, we go into this area called the global South, which is more than half of the earth. And the population, I believe, is to exploit it, to take the minerals, to extract everything we can, whether it's oil or lithium or diamonds and rubies or gold. It's not just you, though. Europeans do it as well. There, it's not just not yeah, only that. You have to take you have to take into you have to take into consideration all the kleptocracy from each respective culture and government of both South American Central American countries. You can't just say in in an irresponsible fashion the United States went to Obama. Well, wait a minute. When did Obama Argentina or Chile? No. No, it had neoliberal policy. Remember, no, but we've gone yeah. down there and How about Venezuela? No, remember. I understand with Venezuela the sanctions, but those are governments that were already going down on their own for their bad no policy way. making. Well, when well, when, when is there a narco communism and narco which makes them right for a bribery? So, like for example, bribe. like for example, Hugo Chavez, Hugo Hugo Diaz uh, Chavez, he enriched his own family. They're millionaires now. Nobody talks about that. Why do they get to be rich? What happened to the rest of the population? Over 4 million Venezuelans out abroad, all over South America, Central America, and in America. You were robotic by the end of the Poor people didn't do that. They left. They Go next to a window or something. You're, you're, you're breaking up. Uh, okay, here's the thing. All right. uh, that's not correct. That, like, uh, you, like the U.S. never bombed Argentina, but Operation Condor is was clearly like Kissinger was here m most of the time during those periods, and they destroyed the Falcon. Like they, they were still paying for the money that it was given to the dictatorship to kill us. So that's. That's, those things happen, but I, I don't think that, that uh, there is 
the, the distractions is one thing, but the other different thing is like the few, there is a lot of, of work needed. I know there is because they take people from other places like Argentina. Sometimes they travel, they make some money, right? Because dollar is a lot more and they come in from the U.S. as if it was nothing while you have people on the border desperate to work but not being allowed in. So the the lack of organization, the the lack of willing to to make something out of it, right? Because uh, there is... Is the world is going to be a much much weirder place in a while? Not just war, but warming or whatever. Like every economy, like uh, thing that like um, sign that you're seeing is going to be uh, is going towards a decreasing of growth. And a decreasing of war of growth means not that the millionaires will stop growing. It's like they will suck the blood out of of you to still grow. So, yeah, I think there's a much more complex layer towards you bomb this, so now you have to have us. So, so it's, it's so much complex. Well, I mean, it's it, things that are overcomplicated often have very simple solutions, but the interests that are, are uh, fighting over resources, over um, what is needed to be done, can't necessarily agree. And that I, that I can vouch for in, a, in my own government. Now, this issue with the border has had, you know, many, many, many lifetimes. You know, bills have come and gone and died. You know, it, all the solutions that have been sitting in stacks gathering dust, you know, all these all these amazing, you know, uh, worker program policies that could could be instituted by the executive branch. Any any executive branch of any administration, no takers because they wanted to weaponize uh, the issue against, you know, part extreme partisanship and, you know, nobody wanted to take the win for the country. So the problem is, is that the, the atmosphere of hyperpartisanship has only gotten worse. Okay. Nobody's working together. And there's dysfunction within the party system so that, you know, the only people that who can be pleased are these neoliberals and neocons, which are basically neostatists who are essentially just fascists. Okay, let's just put it out there. They are, are corporate government people who, who only want to rule so that they can profit. They are kleptocrats and they, they've managed to get a hold of our government. And Can so- I ask you something, Sheila? You mentioned, and that's that's what I, I wanted to say. You mentioned that there was a couple of times that some regulations or like that. Was oh, some- oh they, these proposals have been around for years, and some of them are good. Uh, yes, they just said, like okay. I said, you know, there, yeah. there's been there's been remedies for any number of our problems in in mm-hmm. uh, these municipal areas. You know, it's just yeah. the people who become elected can't govern out of a wet paper bag exactly okay yes and they they refuse to govern they they want to fight and look pretty on tv and that's it and that's the point i think uh, that's what i I meant is like to have some some immigration program yeah not not only that shayla 
once they get into power, they're already bought. Somebody's paid for them. So they'll yeah. give us all the lip service, left or right. They'll give us all the lip service. They promise, but at the end, they don't even deliver 10%. Why? Yep. They're doing the bidding of those that pay for their campaigning. Yep. And it's usually some, some corporation, international, American. They go through the legal system to make sure they're not caught fraudulently, and they pay them up. When they get into power, and they will, then that's when they told them, remember what we did for you? Remember what you promised us? You, Yeah, the people elected you. Yeah, yeah. Give them what they want. Give them 10%. If they give you 50%, that's too much. Give them 20%. So they could have you there like a donkey with the carrot. Give them a little bite or two. Don't give them everything. Let them reelect you. We'll continue. But at the same time, they they give them a future in politics. That's why it's so, again, kleptocratic. Well, I mean, you have there's that can only go so far, buddy. And then and then there are people who actually live in this country who want to run this country. And they're going to smack into them from now, now and again. Not everybody is a paid-for whore that ends up in Washington, D.C. Okay, and, 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 like I, 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 I understand, Sheila. But at the same time, too, when we started electing people like AOC, that's a dumb nut right there. Should have never got elected. But tell that to the people, you know. Well, tell that to the people, and they continue to to elect them. Always going to be kind of a, a liberal, um, a neoliberal bastion. Did they think that they were going to get someone who's basically a proto-communist? No, but that's what they got. But here's the thing: like, I, I think Vlad, like the one when when the they. They started retiring from Afghanistan, like they started looking for another war, right? And at that time was Trump the president, and it was this guy, oh, I don't remember the Catholic one, the vice president. He toured all around South America trying to start a war with Venezuela. So, yeah, they didn't got the president except for Duque to agree with it. So this thing, right? I, I think it's bipartisan. I, I don't think of this, this, this thing that you talk about at least. Uh, oh, the, the I, situation I, of, the, of getting no, sponsors. the political, ex- yeah, the political, ex- yeah, no, that I, I won't like. I won't uh, say about the inside of the U.S. because I don't understand it. But these, these things that we were talking about about this this exterior politics that because I, I saw Vlad complaining like this these things that are continuing because yeah we can be afraid of China but we have to be aware also of, of the US. They are it's bipartisan, right? And you are spending a lot of money in 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 war in Ukraine, right? That made uh, might have been as well. Oh my god my yeah. but not the by my choice no, exactly, exactly. And I'm sure you wouldn't like to bomb Venezuela either because what the hell, right? Like you can agree or not, but just leave them be. But the thing is, um, the, there's, there's no point there's to bomb. That is getting there, rich. What would we get out of bombing Venezuela? There has to be, there has to be a reason. Yeah, there's to get somebody Juan getting Guaido in, in power. I mean, that's the only Guaido was reason. elected by his own people. He can put himself yeah. in power. Yeah. He yeah. cannot Red. get elected by his own people. His Red. own people don't. There Red. are no his own people. Red. Red. Here's the thing. Like, you have to understand, like, 
in Latin America. Sally, give me a minute. Especially Latin Sally. American mindset. There's, there's, Wait, there's, don't interrupt her, please. I know, but hold on. I, one thing I want to say. Don't Why, interrupt go her, please. Don't interrupt her, please. The thing is, like, we can disagree heavily with somebody else. We can disagree with a, a government can insult the other, but we don't intervene, right? Not uh, we can intervene diplomatically. We don't intervene, like since the war, with, when we destroyed Paraguay, we, like in, 19, in 1863, we don't treat, like, it's not in our mindset. We don't go there and change the government they have. That doesn't, never goes well, right? Like you can support and you can get the immigrants as we did. We can support different times. Like with, you can, we, of other other thing, we are completely against any sanctions. Like even our presidents, like put, vote against Russia, voted against the sanctions on Russia. So we don't intervene in other countries. We are no one to judge other countries, right? So we don't do that. We still commerce with them. We still, yeah. It's not it's not a good thing to put sanctions, and it's not a good thing to invade other countries because if, you if it you were effective that'd be one thing silly but it's not over time what? i realized that sanctions are are a, a, the precursor are to war are horrible yeah sanctions are, are hurting you know we are against sanctions like uh, even our presidents of left like right wing left wing all of them even have been speaking up against sanctions because we know the the consequences and they are to the people, they're not to the rulers. So, yeah, I don't, I will never be ready in like any country going and in, invading other country to say, oh, no, we know better how you should be ruled. So, so, okay, bloody, now it's time. Would you? Would you all, I'm, all I'm saying is, I don't know if Red knew. Guaido's out of power. If he ever had it, he came out last week. He's already he, gone. He never- he never had it. He was never elected. He was elected by the council. The same Guaido kind of thing, clown. the unelected board. What? Yeah, but 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 by Guaido, if 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 it, if it any bit if it ever meant anything, he's gone as of last week. He stepped down from whatever little rinky dinky position he had. He's gone. He's a clown. No, my right. question but, is, okay, is right. But ahead. what I'm saying is that, you know, how how long's it been? Three years since who was who was uh, who was the guy that was elected Maduro, right? Maduro, yes. Maduro was elected, and then all of a sudden, the U.S. pulls out this guy, and Venezuelans are saying, "Who's he?" I mean, he wasn't yeah. on the ballot. He wasn't. He wasn't elected. He wasn't nothing. But the U.S. is going to come in there and say that, or the board, whatever it is, is going to come in and say Juan Guaido. So it took like what? Was it that years? Obama thing? New Obama thing. You, uh, you no, well, pretty Obama? much, pretty much, yeah, yeah, wanna, yeah. Not, not, not a Trump thing. It was an Obama thing. Yeah. You wanna know what finished Guaido? He orchestrated a coup with sixty guys, two Marines, against the whole Venezuelan army. Of course, it lasted like two hours. That was the finish because everybody started declaring that he was behind it, and that's what the end of it. He was a clown all over the place. Like, yeah, Guaido. Yeah. He was a Ladies clown and all gentlemen, over the place. I, I'm right. going to have to wrap it up. I mean, it's it's been wonderful, absolute privilege speaking to all of you tonight on, on these topics. Uh, I didn't know that it was going to go this direction, but I'm I'm super lucky to have you in the audience and to talk to to no, thank you. anyone who's going to listen to this in the future. Thank you so much. Uh, you're Lisa. certainly invited to come again and 
and uh, attend our readings uh, and, and discuss, you know, I'm going to try to keep it focused on the topic um, next time, because the closer we get to that visit by Biden, the more, the more we are going to see what happens. So I, I think what I'm going to do is I'm going to spend um, a large chunk of my, of my Friday afternoon or, or just a chunk, just a chunk um, of Friday afternoon getting ready uh, for, for the weekend, but also, um, I think I'm going to spend some time, uh, reading chapters two and three of this, of this book for Colin. And then I'm going to, um, continue readings throughout the weekend and then, um, discuss with another Colin post possibly going to, um, the border region, uh, uh, possibly El Paso, possibly RGV. I, I needed to, to kind of since the garbage bag there. Um, but, but make sure that I can, I can, you know, get an agreement that we're, we're going to talk and we're going to talk about the border on, on the date and time that it's happening. Okay. That's good. And what's yeah, the name I of the book? Can I make one correction? Can I make one correction to Vlad? Uh, Go right ahead. I mean, you're, you're free to talk to each other. Um, the, it was, um, Guaido on January 23rd, 2019. So that's Trump era. That's two years into the Trump era. Guaido and the National Assembly declared that he was acting president of Venezuela. So that's Trump. Okay. Yeah, well, the thing thank is you that for that all, clarification. All were so bad in the they couldn't find anyone. But yeah, it's a disaster. Yeah, so, I think that's the truth. That, that, yeah, that I put the link that you asked me about. Uh, it's an interesting speech about yeah. that you're talking thank about. Thank you for that. And Vlad. And, yeah. Uh, you wanted to say something before we wrap it. Um, no, real quickly, I was asking, what book are you reading uh, about the uh, journalist? Yes, this is this is in the it's uh, the title of our room. This is from In the Mouth of the Wolf. In the Mouth and, of the Wolf is the name of it. And who's the um, author? The author is Catherine Corcoran, and she's an AP reporter, uh, bureau chief. She was a former bureau chief of Mexican. AP Bureau, and it's a murder, a cover-up, and the true cost of silencing the press. I'll make sure to put it uh, this in quotes, scare quotes, in the title uh, and in the description of the episode. So thank you for joining us here on The Unsanctioned Citizen.